welcome to the third annual Warwick Debate in International Political Economy, which we organise in conjunction with the Academic Journal Review of International Political Economy. Uh, my name is Ben Rosamond, I'm the head of the Department of Politics and International Studies. Welcome to all of you, especially those of you who've come uh, from elsewhere to Warwick. Um, we see this event as one of our flagship events of the year from our IPE group at Warwick. Um, as many of you all know, we have uh, an archive of our previous debates uh, dating back to 2008. Uh, this, as you can see from the technical equipment uh, in front of you, is also being recorded, so today's proceedings will survive for posterity as well. Um, the I'm especially pleased to welcome our main speaker today, uh, Professor Vivian Schmidt from Boston University, um, for a number of reasons, one of which is um, that Boston University is one of Warwick uh, University's uh, key strategic partners, and it's really nice to have Vivian here. She's here for a few days as uh, a visiting fellow with the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, her schedule is really scary. She is being worked ferociously hard while she's here. I'm really pleased that she's found time um, to do this. Um, she's going to speak uh, to the topic that you see there, the fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state in modern capitalism and how to explain it. Um, Vivian is going to speak for about 30 minutes and then she'll be uh, exposed to some Discussants, uh, two very distinguished discussants in the shape of Professors Colin Hay and Colin Crouch. I'm going to introduce each of the speakers first and then we'll get on with it. Um, Vivian Schmidt is Professor of uh, International Relations and Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration at Boston University. Uh, she has a whole host of uh, academic achievements, accolades, and visiting fellowships to her name, some of which you see. Uh, displayed on the screen. Um, her work is um, very comprehensive indeed. As, as many of you will know, she is one of the world's leading authorities on European political economy, on uh, European integration, uh, the government and politics of France. Um, and she's also a major contributor to uh, the rise of uh, perspectives in political economy that take account of ideas and discourse. <coughs> Amongst her recent books, the ones that I would single out as being tremendously important and compulsory reading for anybody uh, who's interested in international and European political economy, both published by Oxford University Press, The Futures of European Capitalism from 2002, and Democracy in Europe, uh, again Oxford University Press. 2006. The first speaker in response to Vivian will be uh, Colin Hay, who is Professor of Political Analysis at the University of Sheffield, uh, where he's been since 2007. Before that, he was Chair of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. <coughs> uh, Colin, too, has a very long list of prizes and accolades to his name. Um, Many of you in the room are graduate students and you will know him best perhaps for his 
uh, groundbreaking book, Political Analysis, published by Palgrave in 2002. Uh, amongst his other notable publications are uh, another prize-winning book, Why We Hate Politics, published by Polity in 2007, The Political Economy of New Labour from 1999, and pertinent, I guess, to today's topic, Restating Social and Political Change uh, from uh, 1996. Collins' work is linked by uh, a concern with understanding processes of change um, within advanced liberal democracies, together with a desire to try and understand um, how those processes are located within broader comparative and international settings. Our final speaker is uh, Professor Colin Crouch from the home team, uh, Professor of uh, Governance and Public Management at Warwick Business School. Um, Colin was previously <coughs> Professor of Comparative Social Institutions at the European University Institute in Florence. He's also held positions at Oxford and the LSE. He is a Fellow of the British Academy. And he is a uh, member of the uh, Academy of Social Sciences and an external scientific member of the Max Planck Institute for Social Research in Colombo. Um, Collins' work, uh, which will be familiar to a great many of you, uh, is really about the political sociology of European societies, uh, with special reference to issues to do with the labour market, with gender and family issues, economic sociology, institutional analysis, local economic development and public service reform. His many books over a career spanning uh, something like 40 years uh, include Capitalist Diversity and Change, Oxford University Press, 2005, the uh, many times translated Post-Democracy, Policy 2004, and the Magisterial Social Change in Western Europe, published by Oxford in 1999. The format is this. Vivian will speak for about 30 minutes. The two Collins will have 15 minutes each, and then that will give us some time for Q&A afterwards. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Vivian. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, delighted to see there is a full house, delighted that there's sunshine outside. I didn't expect to come to the world. And also delighted to be speaking before Colin May and Colin So, the topic for today, the fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state modern capitalism that it's planning. It's essentially based on two recent articles I've done. One uh, that came out more in politics this summer on putting the political into political economy. Putting, hmm, putting the political... Uh, Back, thank you. <laughs> Putting the political back into political economy by bringing the state back in yet again. A short point. And uh, that um, <coughs> basically the state and also a piece entitled Taking Ideas and Discourse Seriously that just came out in the European Political Science Review. So I'm actually trying to put those two together to make an argument about comparative political economy and how it has as you can see, lost sight, rediscovered, lost sight again, um, and ought to be rediscovering the state. And that part of this is not just about substantive problems with substantive theory, but also about problems with methodological frameworks. Okay, 
So, to begin, the big question is, what happened to the state, and how do we explain it? So, if you look since in the post-war period, um, already in the 1950s, the state was out, at least in American political science, it was all about pluralism, interest groups. 1960s, the state is rediscovered. This is Schoenfield and all, et, et al. France is at its um, epitome or epiphany, I'm not quite sure which we'd wanna, term we'd want to use, but it's about the state is important um, in the 60s. But by the 1970s, mid-80s, it's all about corporatism, the focus on labor, and the state is out yet again. Then the state comes back in, late 70s, uh, early 80s, this is the Scotch Bowl and all, and perhaps you could argue that it was also the time when the state was actively engaged in response to the first and second oil crises. So, um, but then since the 80s, and now we're shifting to empirical reality, the state, in terms of what it's been doing, has been in retreat. Globalization, Europeanization, in terms of external pressures, you can talk about uh, economic pressures, you can talk about uh, institutional pressures with the rise of uh, international organizations of various kinds, but you can also talk about ideational pressures, neoliberal ideas about which uh, Colin Hay has talked about and written about at great length. Um, but in addition to then the external pressures, internal pressures, state policies, state policies of liberalization and deregulation. Um, and, um, and, and uh, privatization. Okay, and then across this time, then in 2008, what happens? The state comes back in, in response to crisis. The problem is that substantive theory st in political and compared to political economy still downplays the role of the state. You get, and we've had since the mid-1990s, Phil Cerny, Susan Strange, and all, uh, lots of economists talking about whether there's convergence to a single neoliberal model. And with this, of course, the state disappears. You have the response by the varieties of capitalism school, that's Peter Hall, David Soskis, who say, no, no, there's really divergence to two, um, two models of capitalism, liberal market economies and coordinated market economies. Uh, it's not the financial markets driving the state out. It's about firms and the way in which they operate, ensuring that there are two varieties of capitalism. In this, the state is vaguely there, but it's essentially marginalized. More recently, you've had another large school talking about divergence uh, in terms of corporate governance. This is uh, Peter Gorovich and James Shin. And there they talk about coalitions of capital management and labor, ruling modern capitalism. And here, of course, there's no state at all. And having asked Peter Gurvich at one point, you know, where's the state in this? Oh, well, the state, you know, labor stands in for all of that. Well, no, it doesn't. Okay. What about mainstream methodological approaches? Here, too, I mean, it's not just that you've got substantive theories that deny any kind of role to the state. Now, on top of that, you've got mainstream methodological approaches. First, when we think about Peter Stoshpol, Peter Katzenstein and all, the state comes back in, but it fades, it fades away almost immediately because you get the disaggregation of the state into its component parts and a move into historical institutions. 
And the historical institutionalists look at the institutions, historical regularities, and all of that, and you get no sense of the state. Uh, rational choice institutionalists um, talk about the state in terms of incentive structures. At best, you know, it's, it's um, the rational choice institution reduces the state to rational actors, interest-based logics of strategic action. And so institutions here are incentive structures, and that's at best where the state is. Um, historical institutions, as I've just said, disaggregates the state into its institutional components and regularized practices. In both of these, we also, and I'll talk, pick this up later, but I just want to signal it here, we have no sense of change. Um, obviously, for rational choice, you have fixed preferences, um, and you need fixed preferences in stable institutions in order to be able to do your game theory, uh, game theoretic logic. Therefore, you can't explain change. And historical institutionalism, especially at this point, I'll go on later about other uh, more revisionist approaches, but at this point in the game, it's about path dependence. And um, again, no real change. And, um, and what does the varieties of capitalism do? It compounds by putting historical institutionalism and rational choice institutionalism together because you've got macro-historical institutions and, for, and, and coordination games amongst firms. What you do is you get a doubly static depiction of capitalism. You get path-dependent path path macro-structures and fixed preferences and coordination games. So change is only exogenous, and the system is unchanging, even in response to globalization and Europeanization, if these are even mentioned, which they barely are in these approaches. So the result is, we can't explain change, and the state, in the case, really isn't there. Um, but there are further issues about, okay, so, what is capitalism in all of this? How many varieties of capitalism are there? Colin Crouch has written a great book uh, critiquing all of this, um, but I will also critique. Um, so, so clearly the convergent school says there's one variety of capitalism, it's liberal market economy. Are there two varieties of capitalism? That's the LME versus CME, coordinated market economies, that's Peter Hall and David Soskis. Um, I've been arguing since 2002 and probably before that there are at least three varieties of capitalism. Um, and at the time, I talked about state-enhanced capitalism. Now, let's call it state-influenced market economies to fit with the other <coughs> kinds of approaches. But if you look at the varieties of capitalism literature, France is not in there. Italy is not in there. Spain is not in there. South Korea, Taiwan. Actually, most of the world is not in there. In fact, liberal market economies are anglophone. To use a word that Colin has insisted on. Uh, anglophone, yeah, there are not that many countries in the world that are Anglo anglophone capitalism. Beyond, of course, the country in which we sit. Uh, and for the country in which I uh, am a native, I can't say I live there, but <laughs> most of the time we don't know where I am, but right now I'm in Berlin. Um, I mean, here I am in the UK. Uh, but, um, but, you know, Anglophone and coordinated, coordinated market economies, there are not that many more of those. You know, they all happen to be the ideal, typical ones are small countries in 
in Northern and Western Europe. Okay, and you can add a few more. So, in a way, they're at least through. Um, and state influence market economies are important in that. And to, to make the argument, at the very least, we have to talk about different roles of the state. Liberal arm's length relations in this stylized version, it's important to underline stylized version, liberal market economies, UK, US, uh, arm's length relationships, coordinated market economies, and enabling state, <laughs> business and labor interact. State influence market economies, it's an influencing state, which can be enhancing or hindering of labor and business um, actions and interactions. But there's also, and this is important, different logic of coordination. Uh, and I argue variety of capitalism for this, for this third variety, but you could also call it a non-variety of capitalism. It's not important if it doesn't have the same kind of coordination logic. But anyway, liberal um, market economies tend to be financial market driven in terms of adjustment, which is led by firms acting unilaterally. This is in the stylized version of coordination that is the variety of capital school, capitalism school uses. For coordinated market economies, you have firm-led adjustments that's jointly, jointly negotiated by business, labor, and the state. In state-influenced market economies, there's a hierarchical relationship. There's firm-led adjustment where business exercises autonomy, and it's state-driven where the state needs to sees the need to intervene to reshape the economy. So you can talk about three different logics of, of interaction and coordination. Um, but, you know, the truth is, is this enough to talk about the state? The state as political economic setting? These are very stylized. And, you know, where's the EU in all of this? If you read my uh, Democracy in Europe book or read some recent articles, one in JCMS, you'll see that I call the EU a region state. So we would also need to theorize what role does the EU play in all of this, but I'm not going to do this here. Well, make this way too complicated. Um, but sorry, I just anticipated myself. But <coughs> the state is not, it's, it's not enough to talk about the state as political economic setting. There are a whole range of other things that you need to talk about. And in fact, this kind of stylized view of how the stage back doesn't work once you look at other other areas of what the state is. It's not just political economic setting. As you'll see, it's going to be policy. It's polity in terms of ins political institutional um, con context. And it's politics, not just in terms of interest, but also in terms of ideas and discourse. But I'll get to that. So not I don't think it's enough to talk about the state as political economic setting, we have to think about state action and policy. And what I'm going to do now is give you examples very, very quickly, pre-crisis and post-crisis. Because these uh, articles that I've written are obviously about pre-crisis. And it's interesting to see to what extent they actually can take us forward and help us explain. OK, pre-crisis, if you look at state action in terms of policies, it's not predictable. There's no convergence in policies, no total divergence. In fact, liberal market, liberal market economies and liberal market economies, the state, maybe even more, much more interventionist than expected. You look at the work of Nick Moran, it's about the steering state. This is not supposed to be in terms of the typical VOC 
approach. And coordinated market economies, the enabling state, is supposed to uh, help coordination and facilitation. It's not supposed to undo the thing it's supposed to protect. And yet, if you look at what in Germany went on in the 2000s, you see that the state actually acted to deregulate the economy in ways that jeopardized non-market co coordination. The best example of that is the Eiffel um, uh, capital gains tax um, removal in, uh, in the early 2000s. And the influencing state in state in, in, in SMEs, state influence market economies, may also step back to allow greater coordination amongst economic actors. The state will still act, but then it will allow business and labor to interact. So best example of that is the 35-hour work week in France, where the state says, okay, we're imposing this, but then you figure it out, business and labor, and the result is that business actually, after complaining bitterly about this terrible law, managed to gain great advantage as Ben knows and has written about as well. Okay, so again, so pre-crisis, you know, the state doesn't act as predicted by the VOC literature. Um, and of course, we're not even talking about the impact of EU policy, which also has a tremendous import. Okay. But what about the crisis? We have an equally unpredictable mix. Uh, the UK uh, liberal market economy, the Swedish coordinated market economy, the French state influence market economy are all highly interventionist. How do we explain this? If we're just going to be rational choice and historical institutionalist in a VOC kind of way. No one. Okay. There's also something that goes on in terms of policy that may help understand the way in which, why it is that you may have similar policies in different kinds of capitalism. So I'm not giving up this notion that there are different kinds of capitalism. I just want to give up the notion that it's, that I, I want to bring in the state in all its complexity. Uh, and if we do that, we've well, got to start asking, well, how is it? You know, what happened with uh, the changes in the state and the kind of state action in these different varieties of capitalism? Part of the problem in the way we think about it is especially for the convergence people, is that you go from fail, the state does, to laissez-faire. And you know, it's all you know, a, a slippery slope. You start here and you go down. Um, but in fact, there are different ways in which, uh, in which things change. And, and actually, the state generally goes not, not from fair to laissez-faire, but from fail to faire-faire. French term for not how the state do, but the state has others do, has business do, what it no longer does. Um, and there's also, of course, a term that I kind of invent that maybe not quite work if you're very francophone, but uh, faire avec, which is do with. And in fact, corporatism is that, i.e. the state does with social partners. So if, if you want to try to conceive of how this all fits, here's a, a, um, a graph that actually made a chart that shows you. So instead of faire going down to laissez-faire, you actually see you can go to faire avec, faire faire. And, and what you see is sort of overlapping concentric circles with a typo here. Um, but so the influencing state may be closer up on the, on, on, on the scale toward faire. And the liberal state may be lower down, but you know, they all overlap to some extent. And, and reforms 
work in these various spheres. I think that's an important thing to recognize. That it's, it's, it's more complicated and more interesting, actually, uh, than, than one thinks. But there's also state action as politics. It's not just about policy. And here, um, what we need to do is think about not too far there. Uh, think about different ways in which in which states are constituted in terms of political institutional structures. And for this, this is something that I talk about in uh, uh, democracy in Europe. But you know, you can, as simple versus compound polities. But if you want, you can talk about single versus multi-actor systems. But in any case, in simple polities. Countries with unitary states and majoritarian politics and status policymaking, uh, countries like France and, and the UK, governing activity tends to be channeled through a single authority. The state imposes reform, and the response then, in particular in countries like France, is protest in the streets. So it's not that the state it's simply imposed, but you have that kind of interaction. By contrast, in compound polities, federal or regionalized states, or, um, corporatist policy-making processes and proportional representation system, you get a much greater dis dispersion of governing activity <coughs> through multiple authorities. And necessarily, reforms have to be negotiated. In between, there's, there's a continuum in between, you have Sweden, Denmark, Netherlands, uh, and other countries that tend to be unitary states with corporatism. And this is another piece that you need to understand about states in order to understand how their responses may be very different, pre-crisis and post-crisis. So uh, in liberal market economies, big differences between the UK and the US that have a lot to do with the different political institutional configurations. Desmond King uh, and Stuart Wood have written about this uh, very well. But pre-crisis, UK under Thatcher had much greater capacity than the US under Reagan to impose radical neoliberal reform. And during the crisis, look at how fast the UK responded, um, uh, by contrast with the US, which lets Lehman Brothers fail and which seems, yeah, seems to pull back. And coordinated market economy, Sweden versus Germany, state uh, influence market economy pre-crisis. OK, this is a little complicated. Well, I'm not going to explain this because it's, it would take too much time. But why Italy is more successful in the 1990s in pension reform ver as opposed to France, even though France can impose, Italy has to negotiate. But it manages to negotiate, whereas in France you have people out in the streets. But in the crisis, France has greater capacity than Italy to act swiftly, decisively, as a unitary state. But here again, we need to think about the EU. And the question is why the EU Commission had difficulties acting in the crisis and not the ECB. Here you can also talk about single versus multi-actor system. OK, that state action is policy. Here to give you some sense of how uh, simple and compound polities work um, in a yeah, scheme. Um, OK, but what about state action politics, which is the crux, really, of, of this uh, argument? It's that politics is not just rationalist interests. It's also not historical institutional rules and dependencies. And it's also not sociological institutional 
frames and cultures which tend to be behind these standards. It's about discursive institutions. It's about ideas and discourse. And when I give you examples later, you'll see why, um, although you need to know about institutional structures, the sort of polity aspects, and we need to know about policy, and we <coughs> need to know about political economic context, political economic institutions, without ideas and discourse, you really don't understand fully what happened. So how do you think about what I call discursive institutionalism in contrast to rational choice institutionalism? In a minute, I'll explain what I mean more specifically about discursive institutionalism. First, think about rational choice. It attributes rationality to, or it attributes material interests to rational actors in a world of naive risk. What discursive institutionalism, or what people who, who are sitting in this room, lots of you, um, who take ideas seriously. Basically, you separate material from interest. You say there's a material reality and there are interests. And it, they are subjective and, in, and discursive institutional interests are subjective responses of sentient agents, like thinking, speaking, um, acting agents. They're, they're a subjective response to material reality. It means that you construct your interests. It's not that you attribute interests because you are a worker because you're a capitalist, that you have these interests that I attribute to you, no. It's that you may have those interests, and they may be the most natural ones in terms of your ideas about your interests, but they're not necessarily ones that are true. So it's a matter of investigation to figure out what those interests are. But there's also something important here, because the response of the rational choice would be, oh yeah, well you give up material interests, you eat a slippery slope down to relativism. Uh, but I don't think so, because there are different kinds of certainty. And the, the certainty, and Len Siebert can tell, tell us all about this uh, later in terms of uh, issues of, of, of risk and certainty. Mark Blythe writes about this a lot, in fact. Um, but what happens when you have a financial crisis? You thought everything was certain, you know what the risk is about, and then all of a sudden you don't know what it is, and you're thrown into complete uncertainty. And, okay, that's the rational choice. But the rational choice response to the discursive institutionalists, ah, yeah, if everything is subjective, then there's no objective reality, and where are we? But in fact, I use Wittgenstein in this piece I did for the annual review of political science in 2008. I use Wittgenstein, but you can use any number of political philosophers to try to think about issues of certainty and uncertainty. And Wittgenstein, in a very nice little book on certainty, talks about different kinds of certainty, different in, in, in terms of language games. So there are certain language games, in you know, certain ways that you can't doubt. So I can say, I know I have five fingers on my hand. But if I say I know I have five fingers on my hand, you think there's something strange about it. Because this is something that is so certain we don't doubt it. If I walk out the door, I'm not going to wonder if there's a step there. There are all sorts of things that have, uh, have grip. I know my name. These are things that are very certain. These are things we don't question. And lots of the sort of kind of social scientific knowledge we have are those sorts of things that you don't need to question, that you don't need to be uncertain about, in the way that Wittgenstein talks about another category of language game, which calls picture games our pictures of the world, our understanding explanations of the world, including you know, man going to the moon, or 
political science explanations of the financial markets, economists' explanations of the way the financial markets work. Those can be highly certain. They can change just like that. They usually don't because we also believe them. But those have a much greater degree of certainty. So it's not a slippery slope to relevant. There are certain things that are much more certain. There are trees out there. But, um, you know, risk in the financial markets and sovereign debt and credit default swaps, these are constructions. And they're actually very uncertain. Okay, so that's rational choice. Historical institutionalism raises a whole other set of questions because it explains institutional change exogenously at critical, critical junctures. Basically, it can't explain change. It says, ah, major set of events, everything shifts, new path dependence, and we're away. But it doesn't ask, it doesn't explain why these things change. Um, more recently, you've had historical institutional revisionists, Kathy Thielen, uh, Wolfgang Streich, who uh, talk about uh, incremental change, the layering conversion drift. This is a much more sophisticated approach to change. But they're describing change. They don't explain why this is layered, why that was converted, why there's drift in this case, or why things have shifted the way they have. What discursive institutionalism does, it looks at ideas in discursiveness, explains the dynamics of change at critical junctures by looking into the events and asking, why did people respond? Or did people respond? Because there is no necessary, this happens, and then, as economists assume, you've got, you've got uh, the oil shock, the first oil shock, the second oil shock, therefore, everyone becomes a neoliberal. No. You've got to construct, you've got to get new ideas, you have to have collective action based on exchange of ideas, discourse. Okay. Critical junctures, but also incrementally. But importantly, stuff happens. Not everything can be explained by ideas in this In fact, lots cannot be explained. There are unintended action and unintended consequences of action, and on and on. And I think there's a real danger for those people who do ideas and discourse to try to explain everything in terms of ideas and discourse. There's a lot that can't be explained in that way. And so what about sociological institutionalism here? Where sociological institutionalists talk about cultural frames and scripts, they also tend to be highly static and imposing on agents, now they're at least sentient agents, but imposing a kind of view, whether uh, Len and I were talking about whether it's socialization or learning, where, you know, that's it. You acquire knowledge and, and that's it. But in fact, sociological institutionalists um, in some cases are really discursive institutionalists. Those who see more dynamic, um, uh, who are willing to talk not about uh, storylines, let's say, but storytelling, talking about narratives, the way in which things change, I sort of categorize in um, under discursive institutionalism as constructivist as well. So now, how do you explain politics with discursive institutionalism. I'm not going to go into this in any length because I think I'm running out of time. But one needs to talk about different levels of ideas and different types of ideas. So there are policy programs and philosophies. Philosophies probably, political philosophies, public philosophies probably change most slowly. Um, uh, policy programs, paradigms, whatever you want to call them, 
probably change more quickly. Policies, particular policies, can change very quickly indeed. So, you know, let's talk about pre-crisis, um, neoliberalism, uh, you know, is a policy program. Uh, you could also call it a political philosophy, certainly it's Greenspan. I've got to find, I have this wonderful quote from Greenspan. Okay, you know, the ideology behind the crisis. Um, Greenspan, you know, who's a follower of Ayn Rand. Um, so he's, he's in front of Congress and he admits, those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself included, are in a state of shocked disbelief. But then he concedes only that there may be a flaw in his ideology. And he doesn't know how significant or permanent it is, but he's very distressed, distressed by that fact. The city remains dubious about anything to be done. This is October. By January and February, he's urging nationalization of the banks. Okay, this tells you something about even deep-seated polit political philosophies of major actors can change. But ideas matter in all of this. Otherwise, you don't get change. So what's interesting is pre-crisis, all the ideas seem to be about neoliberalism, modernism, and Greenspan. Greenspan's a major agent in all of this. And then with the crisis, all of a sudden, we're back to neo-Keynesianism. Spend, spend, spend your way out of this. And Obama, but how does Obama try to set it up? Yeah, he can't go back to Reagan. He goes back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt to legitimate the new role for the state. Fascinating to read his speeches and how he's trying to legitimate. But you know, against him, he's got uh, he's got uh, Republicans talking about the financial socialism and saying things like America is becoming like France. <laughs> Terrible. Um, of course, France is in its element. You know, finally, people have recognized the French state, you know, lives uh, and ought to live. And, you know, they're supposedly eager and running off to Brussels to say, yes, we can. Um, <laughs> okay. But interestingly as well, there's uh, everywhere, there are not just, um, you know, the state back in kinds of ideas, but there are populist ideas on the obligation to, present, to protect the public against bankers. And that you hadn't seen. And, and if, you, if, if you look back at the discourse in, in the UK, even, Blair 1997 reforms of uh, the regulations of financial markets, you see there, you see two discourses going on, which takes us to the institutional context for discourse and, and the way in which that works. There's a coordinative discourse amongst policy actors, and there's a communicative discourse between political leaders and the, and the public. And what you see is there's mainly, before the crisis, a coordinated discourse among the policy act, basically it's all neoliberal, and there's not even a sense that there's much need to legitimate it, if everyone seems to accept it. It's deepened, it's sort of, it's, it's bled into the public policy. But all of a sudden, all of this is thrown into question, up for grabs, um, and then you get a communicative discourse from the general public, and it's Institutional context, though, in terms of how this discourse works, in terms of logic of communication, in simple qualities, uh, you have a strong communicative discourse. 
Um, in compound polities, there's a strong form of So in Germany, I mean, Merkel, what did she say? Absolutely nothing. And sort of waited for business and labor to try to work it out. Whereas you had in the UK and France, also in the US, which is a compound polity, but it's also the majoritarian politics, you had political leaders out there saying, let me explain it to you. Let, leave it, let me legitimate my actions. We need to, etc. Um, but in, importantly, and I, I don't have time to go into this in any detail, institutional context is not just polity issues. It's not just political institutional structures. It's important to remember this. It is about meaning and logics of communication. And for this, I talk about background ideational abilities, i.e. our ability to think through those things. Uh, it's not just structures as in rational choice. Uh, historical and sociological institutionalism that are external constraints on us, telling us what we have to do. But we, these are internal in discursive institutionalism, but we also can construct and reconstruct the ideas. So we can follow rules, but we can also critique them in our minds. But beyond that, it's not just background ideational movements. This is a lot of what Foucault and Bourdieu talk about. Uh, in the annual review piece, I use John Searle. I'm speaking to the American public, and if I were to use Bourdieu or Foucault, I'd be drummed out of the U.S. profession. I already am, almost. Anyway, um, but so you know, but you can use any number again of political philosophers to do this. Okay, background ideational abilities, but that's not enough. This is about speaking. This is about interaction, about discourse, discursive interaction, because it's about collective action. It's not only getting ideas in your head, but it's communicating them talking to people, convincing others, and then taking action. And that's about foreground discursive abilities, that's Habermas, that's the deliberative democracy people, that's a whole range of other people that you can talk about. Okay, just to end with, uh, but what about power and position? Yes, that matters. There are institutional constraints. There is power, there is position. The problem with rational choice and historical institutionalism is that they assume that power and position are everything. Whereas, in fact, there's also purpose, there's ideas about who's got power, and there are ways in which you can re reverse that. That's why, that's why it's not just top-down leader to publics, elite to publics, but it's also bottom-up uh, social movements, etc. Uh, ideas can flow both ways, and so position is you know, in a way, in the eye of the beholder. So I'm not going to give you all of the examples here of the politics of ideas and discourse in the three varieties of capitalism, but you can see that there's, it's, there's a lot more than just institutions, whether political and economic institutions, political institutions, or even policies to explain. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot about ideas and discourse and that can take you back into culture, into history, but also into what people say, how they frame uh, the debate, what it is um, they see. Uh, so just, just for the US-UK example, the UK, for a variety of reasons, immediately responded. And it's not simply because Brown responded. I know you're getting into it. Um, uh, but it's also that that the state, the role of the state is accepted in a limited sphere, a strong role. And that's historical, that's deep, that's about public philosophy. Um, that's the, and in the U.S., no. Much, much more in terms of how to do it. But the U.S. hesitated, but then it did move. But again, it's about how you frame all of this. Um, 
I, politics of ideas, again, in all of these uh, countries can be very different. Uh, why France responds with alacrity, we you know. They love the state. It exists. In a way, it doesn't even exist in the U.S. You don't use the term the state. Okay. Politics of ideas and discourse in the EU. You know, why does the commission continue to stick to this billion growth? Okay. That's another issue. Why are there no new ideas? I'm talking about, I'm going to argue for a European monetary fund. That's something. Okay, so is this the rise of the state? Are all, all countries SMEs now? Absolutely not. This is far from state capitalism. All states resisted capitalization. State aid was a short-term measure. Uh, states differed in policy, politi po policy, polity, and politics. So generalizations of any country are actually very difficult. But the state will continue to play an important role, but some states more than others. In particular, state influence market economies. Okay, finally, one last puzzle, and then I'll end. Why political economists persisted in seeing only one or two varieties of capitalism and denying a role for the state? Rational choice, and this is important, rational choice institutions makes neoliberal convergence look inevitable. Yeah. Here are the economic incentives. Therefore, people have to act this way. So it's a normative strategy by those people who either love it, neoliberalism, or hate it. You know, either to say accept it or revolt against it. It's a normative strategy to promote acceptance or rejection. Historical institutionalism and its divergence to two varieties look inexorable. You know, Peter Hall, David Soskis really don't like the convergence neoliberal model. And they say, no, 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 there's this other great one. And we're going to make it, it's impossible for there to be convergence, because there are two models, not one, and it's inexorable. And it's even better if you make them inevitable and inexorable by mixing historical institutionalism with rational choice institutions. And this is a normative strategy to promote the rejection of neoliberalism. Sociological institutionalism makes culturally embedded diversity look incomparable. This is for Colin here. Um, the normative, in, in, in a way, it's a normative strategy to resist the imposition of the internationalized form. Okay, so what does bringing the state back in do? Well, it relies for three varieties of capitalism, and it's a normative strategy to rescue France, Italy, and other countries from the dustbins of history. That way, Ben and I can still have an existence as French experts. Right? Exactly. Okay, but what does discursive institutionalism <coughs> do? It leaves the future open to new ideas conveyed by discourse. It shows that nothing is inevitable or inexorable. It's really a normative strategy to bring the politics of leadership and opposition back in. Thank you. Vivian, thank you. That was, uh, as with all of your work, uh, sort of force mixing rich empirical insight with tremendous conceptual insight and parity as well. Um, lots to think about there to help us think. We have two people called Colin. We're going to start with Colin Day. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back in Warwick. It's very nice also to have the opportunity in Warwick to think out loud about Vivian's work, um, which she knows that I like a great deal, and now you will know that I like a great deal too. Um, in fact, I'm just, I mean, I... 
thought about how to play this. I'm, I'm, in part, I am going to respond to the paper, but I'm going to respond to the paper in a slightly odd kind of a way. I'm going to kind of extemporize on the title um, and actually on a sort of ambiguity in the title and then come round to some of the uh, some of the things which are more focused actually on the substance of what she had to say uh, towards the end. But there is an ambiguity, I think, in this title, which is quite interesting. The full rise, fall and rise of the state in modern capitalism and how to explain it. When I first heard that this was the title for this, I was expecting a rather different kind of a paper. I thought this was going to be an account of the empirical fall, rise, fall and rise of the state as an empirical object in modern capitalism. Now, the ambiguity is that this relates also to the full rise, fall, and rise of the state as a concept in our understanding of modern capitalism. And it strikes me that the relationship or the juxtaposition between the two is very interesting. But I want to start by separating them out. In fact, towards the end, I'm going to say more about the full rise, fall, and rise of the state as a concept in our understanding of modern capitalism. But I want to start by talking about the full rise, fall, and rise of the state as an empirical referent in modern capitalism, the idea of the kind of waxing and waning, indeed the coordinated waxing and waning of the state over time. And that's an interesting proposition. What first struck me when I thought about that was that as a title, that's a very non-institutionalist way of looking at things. And in particular, it's a very non-new institutionalist way of looking at things. Why is that? Um, well, it's in part, I think, um, uh, that it's in part, I, I suppose, because it strikes me that we can think about this in terms of a, a vertical plane and a horizontal plane. Um, the vertical plane, I suppose, encourages us to look for difference at the same point in time between varieties. The horizontal plane encourages us to look at change over time. Typically, those who identify change over time tend to imply that the differences between the cases don't matter so much. There was a fall, a rise, and then a rise, and then a fall. And it's kind of conserved between the cases we study. Those who are interested in the vertical plane close their eyes to those historical differences over time and note instead the diversity between the cases. Capitalism comes in varieties. Indeed, it may come in as many varieties as there are cases. Um, and then if we want parsimony, well, we group them together and, and say that there's variation, there's kind of, there's kind of conserved variation in these things. The tendency in institutionalist writing, certainly recently, uh, has been, I think, to focus on that vertical plane rather than the horizontal plane. And that, in a sense, is the problem here. I mean, if there is a need for a discursive institutionalism, if there is a need to rediscover the historical moment in a dynamic sense in historical institutionalism, it is to return, I suppose, the, um, the horizontal to, to an account which is capped too heavily in terms of the vertical. So in talking then about the full rise, fall, and rise of the state, it strikes me that actually we're already breaking some territory from neo-institutionalist work as it, has, as it is now coming to us, which is typically couched in terms of stability over time, but a heightened sensitivity, albeit one which has been eroded, to, uh, uh, to difference at the same point in time. Okay, so in a sense, actually, those accounts which are most uh, sensitive to historical variation, to difference over time, where that difference is conserved between cases, actually tend to come out of rather more uh, traditional uh, Marxist and neo-Marxist accounts of the development of the state um, uh, that haven't forgotten the state at all, that have always been talking about the state in, 
uh, interesting kind of a way. Also, the regulatory school, perhaps, uh, as well. And uh, it's maybe interesting to consider the role that potentially might be played in taking us forward in that kind of direction. Okay. Um, so this is not a very neo-institutionalist title, since it draws our attention at the system level, to capitalism, indeed, that's the other point, to capitalism. It's always struck me that varieties of capitalism is kind of odd. Why varieties of capitalism? There's not very much capitalism in the analysis of these things. It could be uh, V-O-B-E, varieties of business environment, uh, or perhaps if you want a bit of C, V-O-C-G, varieties of coordination game. But actually, there's not very much capitalism in here. Um, and, and but Vivian's drawing attention to capitalism and to the system level, and also to the possibility of coordinated change between varieties over time. And that's kind of interesting, I think. Um, there are, of course, and Vivian is one of them, a neo institution, there are neo institutions, she's not alone in this, uh, who get beyond the comparative statics which increasingly tends to be associated with contemporary neo institutionalism. But even for many of them, the, the Thelens, the Streets, the Des Kings and the like, I suspect the notion of the full rise, fall, etc. of the state would be unfamiliar and perhaps also somewhat problematic. For I guess as institutionally sensitive to that ins the institutional diversity of capitalist political economies, they would surely suggest that, that given that even, even common or system-wide pressures are mediated and refracted differently in different, in different institutional configurations in different ways, there's no a priori reason to expect coordinated shifts in the level of stateness over time. So there's a problem to be explained here. Now, it strikes me actually that typically if you were able to convince them that there was this formal rise, formal rise of the state, they would have to seek exogenous explanations for it. Um, and in fact, they probably wouldn't want to go there because as institutionalists, that's not what they do. Instead, it strikes me that what they would do would be to turn this into not a single fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state in modern capitalism, but specific and discrete falls and rises in individual cases which need to be analyzed in their own terms. And I suppose the question implicitly I want to pose is how much of that system level analysis do we need? How conserved are those switching points? Do we get a fall and rise and fall and rise, or do we get falls and rises? And I suppose, I think, in the end, we get falls, plural, and rises, plural, rather than a common fall or rise, although it's probably not quite as simple as that. So, my question, in a sense, is this a, good, is, is this a good way of posing the question? To explain the development of modern capitalism, do we need to answer the question? Do we need to be able to explain the fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state? I'm not entirely sure. I've got some causes for concern here. Three, I think. Firstly, I'm concerned that we start with a fall rather than a rise in the title. It's a fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state. Secondly, I'm concerned that we finish with a rise. Um, rather than four. And thirdly, I'm concerned that we alternate between the two, which, which doesn't leave a great deal. Uh, so I've got a problem where we start, I've got a problem where we end, and I've got a problem with the alternation between fall and rise all the way through this. Now, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I'm not even playing devil's advocate, because I'm not sure the Vivian's arguing anything like this, actually. But I think it's quite a useful way of reflecting on some of this. So why might there be a problem there? The first point's a trivial point, in a way. The moment that more trivial than the three, I think, that we start with a fall. That I think is problematic because as good institutions, if we're good institutionalists, 
uh, sensitive to notions of class dependence, and it strikes me that most institutionalists in some sense are, we need to pay attention to the initial rise, to the moment of origin in some sense, uh, to have much of interest to say about the subsequent fall. We need to know where we've been in order to be able to say something about where, where we move later. I mean, of course, there is a problem there. It strikes me that actually that's the bit of change that the new institutionalism deals with really well, the kind of creational moment, the moment of inception. Uh, institutional inception, new institutionalists have got very good, I think. But the problem is that they don't deal very well with kind of post formative institutional change. But we should probably start with the rise rather than the fall, but that, that's a trivial point. The more interesting ones, uh, I think, are the second two, that we should finish with a fall rather than a rise. I think if we're interested in describing real-world and contemporary developments, as I think we are, and the crisis is, of course, what animates this, then we shouldn't be finishing with a, we should be finishing rather than a fall rather than a rise here. Um, it's easy to see why we might see the period after the bubble burst. I prefer that to crisis for reasons we could talk about, but probably we won't. Um, the bubble burst and ensuing politics could be seen as, and in one sense it is the rise or the return of the state to some extent. We've seen what, to extent, Colin Trouch's analogy might be the nationalisation of privatised Keynesianism, if you like. Um, or more simply, the public underwriting and shoring up of private institutions. But stateness gauged as the public sector's share of GDP is here, I think, rather misleading. Yes, the, si the size of the state has grown in such terms, but this is partly due to the substantial drop in, drop in GDP. Secondly, it's, it's more significantly due uh, to the relabeling of private debt, essentially, as public debt. Uh, and this is almost better seen as an accounting convention rather than a genuine growth in stateness per se, I think. And crucially, this is almost certainly temporary, as the underwriting of private debt will over time displace real public spending. This, I would argue, is much better and more accurately seen going forward as a process of retrenchment rather than one of the rise of the state. So in a sense, we've got the kind of prelude to retrenchment in this process. <coughs> so it's a rise in lieu of a later fall, I think. And that, that, of course, restores some of the politics to this too. The more general point, I think, is that we can't say too much about what's going on simply by focusing on whether we've got more or less state. It's the character of the state that we have, and that reminds us that state was always there, in a sense. Its character may change, its character may have changed, but I'm not sure, ultimately, how much utility we get from this kind of waxing and waning notion of the state itself. Uh, although the discourse of that is quite significant, and it strikes me that that discourse plays out differently in different national contexts, and is, is bound up with the politics, for instance, of the French response. But the state, the notion of the state, carries greater legitimacy uh, than it perhaps does in an Anglo-liberal kind of a setting. Um, and and that, may, that may make it easier to justify certain forms of intervention, the character of certain kinds of state intervention in some contexts as opposed to others. Okay, all of that was predicated on the assumption we were talking about the fall, rise, fall, and rise of the state as an empirical object. Um, but of course, Lillian's paper is really much more concerned with the not unrelated question of the changing role of the state in our analysis of modern capitalism. I want to uh, I'll finish with that and bring the state back in, taking it out, bringing it back in, etc. Now, much, I mean, part of the reason for focusing on what I have focused on is I agree with very much of her description of this bringing the state in and taking it back out kind of stuff. 
Yes, the bringing of the state back into the 1980s, Scotch Paul et al., was the prelude to the new institutionalism, um, which rather sadly dissolved uh, in the specificity, rather dissolved the specificity of the state as a concept. Uh, in this kind of amorphous proliferation of micro and meso institutional soup. I'm sure there's a joke about meso soup, but I won't go there. I think Vivian's more optimistic than I am about the state coming back into these analyses. I'm not sure I quite see that yet. Um, and, and actually, what I want to go on and say is if the state is coming back into these analyses, I'm not sure it's coming back in the right kind of a way. I kind of want to argue that bringing the state back in doesn't guarantee bringing politics back in, and bringing the state back in, it's kind of an argument that it makes, but bringing the state back in as an institutional context, as a label for kind of reuniting this disaggregated, disaggregated miso soup of institutions, is not, is not a guarantee that there's any politics animating or driving that in, in a way. Um, so maybe we, we have to be careful about presenting bringing the state back in as the, problem, as the solution to this particular uh, problem. The other thing that strikes me is that this is now becoming a very, a very sort of American political science debate. Um, bringing the state back in was much more needed in American political science in the 1980s than it was in European uh, political science. Uh, the European tradition, which blurs the boundaries between political sociology, political economy, and political science, and where it blurs them the most, the state has always been the central concept is still very much alive, and it, in one sense it always has, and a lot of the return to the state, both by Scotchpot et al., was whether it was acknowledged or not, and, and more recently, was informed by uh, those European, that European tradition, uh, albeit as uh, something which dare not speak its name in this, I sometimes think. Um, a few other sort of little points in a way. Um, there's quite a lot in this paper and one of the papers on which Vivian draws here on varieties of institutionalism. Um, and, I mean, we very much agree on this, but I think there's a slightly different emphasis. I suppose in the end, I mean, I mean, actually, her argument's about the need for the recognition of another variety of capitalism. It's also about the need for the recognition of another variety of institutionalism. Um, and I guess kind of Vivian wants to find an institutionalism amongst those who are sensitive to ideas and to enlist those who reveal their sensitivity to ideas as being, uh, as being part of this discursive institutionalism. I think my, my view on this is slightly different. Um, in the end, I think that whether we need another institutionalism or not, it's not really a question of whether we need one or not, it's more a question of whether our, there are authors within institutionalism working with an ontology which is significantly different from the others. There is a rational choice institutionalism which is animated by rational choice ontology which is very clear, not always highly concerned amongst those who, who are rational choice institutionalists who take ideas seriously because actually I think they erode some of the foundations of that ontology in, in the process of, of doing so. There's a sociological institutionalism which has a fairly distinct ontology and there's a historical institutionalism one about which is quite a lot of debate about what its ontology is and whether it ever had one and whether it's just rational choice plus sociological institutionalism or whatever. It strikes me the best contender for an ontology which might animate an alternative ideationally sensitive institutionalism is constructivism, is constructivism, but it actually strikes me that very few of the institutionalists who are interested in ideas are consistently constructivist in their approach. And whilst that continues to be the case, I think uh, a new ideational constructivist discursive institutionalism is more an aspiration than, than a reality, perhaps. Final point. Um, it echoes. Uh, the crux, as Vivian called it, of her argument, and I think it's exactly the right crux, 
Uh, but I want to put it in a slightly different way. Uh, bringing the state back in is not the same as, nor for me nearly as important as bringing politics and the contingent back into this. Um, and it strikes me that bringing the state in is also no guarantee of bringing politics back in. It strikes me that we could restore the state, a la Scotch Pole, in a lot of neo-institutionalist work, but without bringing any more politics back into the process. So we need to be careful about how we bring the state back in, I think. The state is not just a macro-level institutional environment, uh, but it is rather more, I think, um, the context the site of clashing and competed, competing constructions of interests, in a sense. That's a very constructivist institutionalist way of putting it. I think it's consistent with what the Greens are doing, and I think it does create the kind of space that we need for politics in institutional analysis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Colin Thank you, Ben. I want to say to Vivian, uh, I don't, I'm not sure I entirely agree with everything you say. The trouble is, when an English academic says that, in this land of deceptive politeness and obsessive triple negatives, it means I think you're talking nonsense. Uh, but uh, that's not. <laughs> have to imagine I'm a Dutchman or Scottish or from some other in-your-face Calvinist culture. When I say I'm not sure I entirely agree with what you say, I actually mean that. But I'm uncertain, uh, but because I think I agree with a lot of it, but I, there's an uncertainty I've got. And the root of my uncertainty is that I'm not sure, and I mean, and I'm really not sure, whether the state did, does come and go in analysis like this. Uh, neoliberalism may have tried to write the state out normatively from how life should be conducted, but it's absolutely obsessed with it um, and blames it for most of what happens. I'm just, you, I know you can't prove things by examples, but they're more fun than evidence. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my friend Robert Boyer, I suspect a uh, friend of Vivian's as well, was happily found himself in the Midwestern... Robert is French. No, excuse me. Uh, found himself in a Midwestern university in the US in an economics department when the crisis was at its height. And he said, ah, right, what are you going to say to this then? Perfectly adjusting markets. They, and his economics colleagues said to him very seriously, uh, this is all the fault of 150 years of banking regulation in the United States. <laughs> it's the state that's the blame for this. Uh, and that is, in a way, the state is always there uh, in neoliberal analysis. And with the exception of pluralism, which interestingly did, 50s pluralism did reduce the state to, it's a phrase in one of the, the, the bits of literature at that time, that, 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 that the, um, the state became a kind of switchboard. Um, nowadays there's no such thing as telephone exchanges, no one knows what the switchboard is, but, it, but all it did was root demands. And that really did get rid of the state, but it seems to me none of the other things have actually got rid of the state. Uh, they might, except in a normative sense. And behind the position they have towards the state lies, I think, something that is deeper and uh, gives rise to some more profound differences. And that is on whether there is a denial 
that there is such a thing as public goods and collective goods. Uh, because it's quite possible to take up a neoliberal position or a classical economics position and to say, of course we accept there's such a thing as public goods, it's an economics concept. Uh, also to recognise that markets by themselves cannot create public goods. They, state action or some other collective actors can fashion markets so they can, people can, so that, that, that problem solved. By themselves, markets don't do that. The market itself is a public good. People can own individual markets, that like the stock exchange, but the market, as it exists in economic theory, is itself a, public, a classic public good. Therefore, the market cannot create the market. Uh, therefore, something outside the market has to create the market, no, that, uh, and has to maintain the market, keep it clean and weed-free, right? that, that, that it can't do it for itself. Now, there, there is debate about that, but there's a lot of people who will take very neoliberal <coughs> positions who nevertheless would accept there is such a thing as public goods and collective goods, uh, and uh, the issue then becomes one of whether of, of what role the state has in relation to that. And that shifts the discussion to, I think, more fertile territory. Uh, more difficult are people who actually would want to deny the existence of public and collective goods. Uh, and you do meet them. And the <laughs> theoretical position is not, not, not strong. Um, but they, they, there are people who sort of find they're almost in that position, but it comes more by how they emphasise what the market's about. Um, as you can see, the market is something that, you can stress the market as something that gives incentives to individuals. And you can see the market as something that coordinates. And to the extent the market is something that coordinates, the market, although it itself needs to be created, uh, the market is, is a device for ensuring that the pursuit of private ends comes out with outcomes that are publicly and collectively accepted. And there is then uh, an issue at that level of the relative role of the market and the state in being able to secure collective goods and public goods, always accepted the market itself can't create itself. Now, when we, when we frame the debate in that way, uh, we can phrase a new question, and that is, if, if we've separated the state from the pursuit of public and collective goods, we can ask, uh, how adequate is the state for carrying out that task, for, for, for seeing to collective and public goods? Because we, we, there's a tendency in a lot of, um, of, of discourse a tendency to assume a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between the state and the pursuit of collective and public goals. But we can separate them and we can ask, not necessarily theoretically and systematically, but at least empirically at any one moment in time, how adequate is the state for, for doing this other thing? Uh, and I think a lot of the issues about rise and fall of the state and recurrent and changes in perspectives on the state can be seen as differences in the perception of the adequacy of the state for, 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 for performing these other tasks. And that's actually a, 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 the, the debate among people who disagree normatively or empirically or theoretically about that is less of a distance than the distance that there would be uh, between people who accept that frame 
and people who would simply say there's no need to bother with collective interests. We're all just here fighting for our ends. Which rational choice theory is a bit like that. And rational choice theory uh, is different from economic theory in that it doesn't actually assume an equilibrating market. Uh, in rational choice, you, you, you just rip each other off. Uh, in, in the market, you can only rip people off by actually doing things that contribute to the whole and your discipline. Uh, and so that political science gets the sort of nastier end of, of rational choice. Economics gets the kind of more benign end of it. Um, but we can ask legitimate questions about how adequate the state is for doing this role that it's gradually acquired over the centuries. Uh, and, and in many ways, it's very much a post-French Revolution view. As well, English Reformation first, then post-French Revolution view, uh, changed again by sort of 20th century Scandinavian social democracy that tends to, to give the state this... Um, very, very special place as something that has this capacity to see to our public and collective ends. The, 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 the state, not, not in the United States, because they don't have this really, except around the military function, but the, the, the state has a kind of status honour in Weberian terms because it's dealing with these collective tasks. Earlier than that, and before the French Revolution, and in some parts of Europe, uh, right up until much more recently, into the 20th century, that is very much a role that is shared by, with, between the state and the church. And if anything, the state's the junior partner in that. The, 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 the agency in society that has the job of, of, of spelling out what the public good is, is, is only incidentally the state. Well, both the state and the church proved themselves totally unworthy to their trust throughout the centuries. But uh, it's certainly uh, the notion of the monopoly of the state on uh, pointing to collective, public, therefore unselfish goals uh, is, is a modern construction. Uh, and, and there are then doubts about it, which are partly, partly doubts that we get from, from public choice theory, uh, which is a, is a kind of right-wing theory, but it, it, it's... It puts forward a view that's very widely shared on the political left, and that is, are politicians as a class, as a set of human beings, up to the task of managing these grand purposes, or are they actually often in it for themselves? Uh, are they um, the only difference? Uh, is the only difference between people working in the state and people working in the market the fact that the state's much less effective at disciplining than the market? It's a basic proposition of public choice theory. Uh, uh, so so he, there is an issue of uh, which, uh, um, and from time to time, people might vary in their estimates of that uh, as to uh, how worthy or unworthy are the occupants of state functions, either politicians or officials. Uh, how, how worthy are they of bearing the, this task that we get the state to do? And there might be rises and falls, low views, high views of the state, depending on historical experience, recent developments, uh, uh, and so forth. And, and this, of course, is, is, is an endemic issue that you can't solve. And, and, and I was mentioning how, um, until certainly the French Revolution, the state shares this sort of role in, in, as the representative of collective goals with the church, and I'm, I'm always struck when I think of this problem of, of, of how we sort of often honour the state and have contempt for the officials in it. 
the same problem faced by Dante, who, believing that the church was the expression of God on earth and the Pope was the vicar of Christ, and yet he's able to put Pope Boniface V in hell. Uh, and and there's not, he doesn't see a contradiction there. Right? It's that the, the, the actual personnel can be totally unworthy of the task. Uh, and that's one way in which, and, and one might still say, yeah, they're totally unworthy of it, but they are actually somehow and sometimes forced, because of the position they're in in society, to, to, to pursue public goals. Uh, and so we do ask these totally unworthy figures to bear this role. Uh, and other people will say, no, we can't, we can't trust Another way in which we might, uh, th th there's room for legitimate debate about, uh, uh, which will vary from time to time, situation to situation, is the effect on the nation state of globalization. Because we tend to, we tend to see, we still tend to have a vocabulary that talks about the state having public functions. Uh, but if we mean public in the economist's sense of, of non-rival indivisible goods, uh, nation states by themselves very rarely pursue public goals. They pursue collective goals. They are non-market uh, actors uh, organizing competitive groupings against each other. The, 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 the state isn't public in that sense that we, 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 when we, that we, that we associate with public as being universal. We say we have universal health care. We don't have universal health care. You have to be a member of a city. You have to be a citizen of a very peculiarly defined geopolitical entity in order to, to claim your right. So the, the world of the state doesn't give us a world of the public and the universal. It gives a series of collectivities. Uh, it, they, these collectivities come together sometimes uh, at a global level or, or an international level, a re world regional level, and, and carry out public functions. Very frequently they fail to do that. And, and I suspect with climate change we're seeing the, the biggest single acting out of the failure of the human race to, 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 to see to its, room, its genuine collective public goods. Um, probably we won't solve. Um, but it, again, it's, it's, it's an area where we, we, if we, once we separate the state out from the public and the collective, we can begin to talk about when does the state sort of earn its place to be up there uh, as seen as, a, as, as a, an institution that's, that's part, of the, part of the institutional setup. When is it seen as something that's inadequate or a nuisance or even parasitic? So I think what I want to insert into the debate is this division between the state and the public, and then to sort of reinterpret some of the themes uh, of Vivian's talk uh, in the light of that. Colin, many thanks. I have a question about method. Um, how do you do discourse institutionalism? What is distinctive about discourse institutionalism in its approach and method from the other institutionalisms? And as you mentioned that you're sometimes in danger of being drummed out of the US profession, how do you deal with critics who want evidence of a cause and effect relationship between ideas and subsequent policy changes? Um, very briefly, just two, uh, in spite of myself, empirical points. <coughs> 
uh, one institutional, one geographical. The institutional empirics seem to be missing from this is law. Uh, an awful lot of what people are saying with respect to the state, I think particularly Colin, yeah, they're talking about public goods, was talking about law. Law and the state are not the same thing. Not least because of public international law, which is extremely complex, and I'm sure uh, everybody knows. Uh, the geographical point is to kind of toss a brick into the miso soup. The brick in question being Brazil, Russia, India, and China. It's an incredibly Eurocentric view of the world, which is a US and Eurocentric view of the world. Varieties of capitalism. What about China? Uh, the rise, rise, transformation, rise, and rise again of the state, if you want to put it in those terms. And I think there's a need to broaden this empirically in a massive way, in order to take account of different practices of stateness as well as discourses. Thank you. Uh, we've heard a lot about institutional creation or kind of uh, the development of new institutions and decline of institutions, but what about processes of institutional maintenance? <laughs> I was interested in what processes discourse plan. You know, I, I actually wanted to say what you just said, which is about opening up the debate. But I also wanted to um, thank Colin uh, Hay for bringing in the distinction between the focus on the state and the focus on politics. Because I think institutionalisms, all these four institutionalisms that, and you can add the fifth, which is, as we speak, perhaps being hooked up in Edinburgh and Sheffield, which is feminist institutionalism. Um, it seems to me they do share that depoliticized notion of the state, state as institution. And I think we, we queried far too little. So that was one aspect of it. And the second thing I was thinking much more about the um, discursive institutionalism itself, because discourse, um, and I think it's maybe because of my current preoccupations, has to be performed. So are we then thinking about performative institutionalism, which does include uh, things like the Seattle protests or the Genoa protests on the one hand, and the notion of shock and awe in terms of war games in real theaters of war um, so I think that, you know, on the one hand, I'm probably making a plea for bringing the politics back in and jettisoning this de whole debate, being rather radical, um, in terms of the politics of it. And on the other hand, I'm trying to think of, you know, how do we open up the dis discursive institutionalism <coughs> still further. Okay, thanks. Well, we'll, we'll take those first and Yeah, great questions, wonderful comments. And, um, you know, this is the problem of everyone taking ideas and discourse too seriously. I quickly <coughs> come up with this title. Ah, sounds good. I don't really think, should I put rise or fall first? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking, yeah, political scientists, you know, starting in the 50s, it's fall, then it's rise, then it's fall, then it's rise. But nonetheless, um, that's a great discussion. I think all of those points are absolutely right. Um, where do you set the beginning, rise or fall is important, but you know, there's, we can go into infinite regress. And as I started thinking about that, I thought, okay, I'm not going to go there. Um, <clears throat> I was also sort of thinking to myself, yeah, and everyone's seeing this title, I was going, you know, especially when I was 
realize that the two columns are in the respondent. And again, I really should be talking about substantive theories. <clears throat> Do I go back to Marx? Do I go back? And I thought, no, don't go there. And since I'm really trying to make a point about institutionalisms and the fact that you know, people quit thinking about substantive theory. What I loved about both comments is that you're actually trying to talk about substantive theories about the state. And we've lost all of that. So in a way, what we should take away from my um, <clears throat> paper, my discussion, is now it's time to actually go back and think about the state. We've got two very good um, sort of beginnings of talking about how we go back to thinking about the state. And of course, as Colin both said, the state is always there. This is a construction of political scientists, in particular American political scientists, to basically say the state isn't there. But it's also a construction that's very important as a normative construction by economists. Um, and all sorts of people, as Tom Crouch was telling us, who really don't like the state, who or don't think about it in this way, and the minute you get into any kinds of rational choice, public choice kinds of things. The state as a political actor in any, in any way is evacuated. And I think so it's, it's, it's important. And, and although I think politics is tremendously important, as you said and as, as Colin Kane said, um, we should not forget the state is also an actor and can be a very potent actor, a public actor. Part of the problem with the corporate governance literature is they evacuate the state. They don't think about public actors, public officials, actually thinking about acting in anticipation of the interests of the public, of citizens, in anticipation of elections or whatever. We mean to a rationalist account of this. Um, but that's all been evacuated. So it's really a plea for bringing the state back in again and again, but in different ways and more subtle ways. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now, in terms of the way I see discursive institutionalism, this is really, um, it started because I found, this is a little history here, you know, in the 80s, up until the mid-90s, you could actually write, in the U.S. even, but also, you could write about countries, you could write, you know, you could do regional accounts, you could do country accounts, and everything was there. It was policies, it was politics, it was politics, and it was interests, and it was culture, and it was history, and it was ideas, and it all was fine. And then we forgot, and it was all part of substantive theories and arguments about how you explain the world. And then, by the mid-90s, it's all about institutions. It becomes methodological wars, uh, you know, maybe Someone would like to argue, I think I shouldn't, end of the Berlin, you know, fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of capitalism versus communism, Marxism is dead, therefore no use for substantive theories, let's not fight about that anymore, let's fight about methodologies. And you get a split and you get rational choice institutional saying, this is the only way to explain anything, it's all about interest. And historical institutions respond, no, 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 institutions matter, and, but it's only this. And you get, it's all about culture. Okay, and then there are people who think that ideas also matter. And discourse. And there's a whole range of people. So, okay, mid-90s, I'm writing away and I'm, you know, following, you know, the debates. And I do some rational choice, some historical institutions, and then I'm stuck. 
because I want to talk about ideas and discourse too, after all, I normally did that. And then I start looking around for accounts, something, some theory about ideas and discourse that I can just you know, use and that's fine. And so I start reading. And I start reading about people who do ideas, the ideational term, and it's all about ideas. But there's not much interaction there. And then I look at others. And so then there are people who talk about advocacy coalitions and epistemic communities. And it's all about policy. And it's insurrections and it's agents, at least. But on the ideas side, we, as far as we get as carriers of ideas, I want agents, too. So I think, OK, it's got to be discursive interactions. And I look at policy. But then I, you know, but there's something more to it that, than that. What about selling those policy ideas to the public? So it's not just a core discourse, it's a communicative discourse. And I'm reading all of this, but most people are writing only in this or that area. And so I come up with this, okay, let's find some kind of umbrella concept, which I end up calling discursive institutionalism, to simply describe the wide range of approaches that people have, which I then call an analytic framework and try to use that in my own work to talk about that which one ought to think about in order to explain empirical reality. At which point, it may be that epistemic communities best explain. It may be that you want to talk, use deliberative democracy. You certainly also want to talk about the substantive content of the discourse, but also who's talking to them, where, when, why. So that's a kind of background that explains where I get this. And then, so what are the methods? You know, tremendous numbers of different methods because there are a whole range of people who use this to come up with a range of things. So lots of people talk about process tracing. There's that. I've been looking at some of the post-modernist, post-structuralist stuff. It's really interesting in terms of ideas and how you how you actually analyze conceptually ideas, which in fact the comparative political economists really haven't done. There's much more of a sort of empirical, ideas are important, so let's look at how they're important substantively in, say, the history of socialism, this and that. But they don't do what lots of the postmodernists and post-structuralists do, which is actually try to analyze ideas, conceptually, theoretically. However, there's also sort of the issue of institutional context, and that's really where I fit the institutionalism. And I may be exaggerating a bit, because the people I put in here in some cases, don't really talk much about institutional context, but I feel they ought to. Okay. Which gets us to Colin's comment also about ontology. He's right. Some of the people who I would call discursive institutionalists don't think of themselves as constructivists. They don't know that they are. <laughs> they are. They just don't know it. Uh, but that they also have to do with to whom they're talking. You know, there are people who talk about ideas and interests, as if those are separable. But that's because they're talking to people who, you know, rational choice and historical institutionalists wouldn't take them seriously yet. So there's that. Okay, and finally, on causes, how do you explain, how do you demonstrate causes? I mean, what I've done is a variety of things. Um, I often say, here's a rational choice you know, how, how, how can we demonstrate that, that ideas and discourse matter? I say, here's a rational choice account. Here's a historical institutionalist account. They can explain this much. Each one can explain this much or that much. But without the ideas and discourse, you cannot explain 
why this thing happened. So that's one way to talk about causal influence. Another way is matching pairs of cases, where I've done that with the welfare state, you know, um, compare the UK to New Zealand in terms of, of reform, um, and, you, and, and you can control for everything except discourse. But I'm not going to go into the example here because it'll take us too long. But so there are a whole variety of ways in which you can do it, and I'm happy to learn more. I mean, sort of picking up on everyone's you know, methodology. It's not that this has a specific methodology. This is dis what I see discursive institu institutionalism doing is pointing to a whole range of approaches that really have a tremendous amount in common, even if they come out of different traditions, rational choice historical institutions and sociological institutions. Okay, that's method. Um, ah, yes. Varieties of capitalism, Brazil, uh, Russia, China, totally Eurocentric, uh, Western. Absolutely. That's really a big problem uh, with this approach. I was at a uh, workshop at Harvard, and a Latin Americanist stood up after there was a discussion that started out with Varieties with, with of Capitalism. And this Latin Americanist said, You know, I don't understand you people. You know, I mean, I can't understand this approach. Stability? Institutions that work? No, I mean, this is, you know, this is not Latin America. Latin America is about politics, it's about instability and the rest. So that's one piece of the answer. The next piece is, um, as I started making this argument, you know, I always say, no, this is very important, I say at least three varieties of capitalism. <coughs> in fact, I'm convinced there are many, many varieties of capitalism which, which fits with the things that Colin Crouch has argued for years. Um, but, you know, I was playing with the, this idea, you know, why call uh, state influence market economies the third variety of capitalism? Why not call it the first? Because the state is active everywhere. It's really state influence market economies everywhere other than these few Anglophone and coordinated market economies. But at the point at which I say that, what am I saying? You know, then this becomes an uninteresting category because it doesn't, I mean, and then I started thinking, okay, so what we need to do is then take state influence market economies and parse this out and talk about Latin America, hierarchical um, market economies, but also hierarchical logical coordination, but where you don't have the kind of French variety of the state helps things move up. You have the state and, in this case, um, foreign companies, uh, foreign MNCs, actually ensuring that you get a downward trend in terms of labor skills, etc. So there can be some really interesting things. Uh, but maybe this is too much then. You know, if I'm going to explain the entire world with this one category, you know, what's the point? Um, but, you know, one important piece of information I want you to know, the Chinese are translating, just translated the futures of European capitalism, mm -hmm. which is all about state-influenced market economies. I wonder why. <laughs> okay, and then just as politics, I think it's key. It's really key, and part of my constant focus on the issue of discursive interactions is to point to politics. Politics in terms of policy domain, but politics also in the communicative sphere, and, and, and the sort of the political sphere. And for that, I think it's tremendously important to talk about issues like social movements, uh, what Glenn talks about in terms of everyday practices, and not simply think about the top down, but also the bottom up. And that's, yeah. I'll stop.
Yeah, just, I mean, just two tiny, tiny points. Uh, the first one is the dangers of variety talk. I mean, I, I think actually we would be better institutions if we didn't talk about variations of variety. If we talk about variations without talking about varieties. We exhibit our parochialism uh, when we look to subdivide those cases we know best into varieties. And it's not terribly surprising uh, that a bunch of American Europeanists should exclude many cases from the varieties which they choose to focus on. But that's, that's what happens when you when you want to decommentalize things into varieties. And the second point is about discursive institutionalism and method, um, which is exactly the right question. But I don't think discursive institutionalism can have a distinct method if it doesn't have a distinct ontology. Uh, it will have a variety of methods which reflect a variety of ontologies. It, if I, so I can, answer, I can answer as a constructivist and tell you what the constructivist institutionalist method would be. But until such time as we we find that there is an institutionalism which has a distinct ontology. I don't think we can talk about it having a distinct method. Uh, so it would be premature for me to tell you how, as a constructivist institutionalist, I would do discursive institutionalism. No, I could, but that would be generalizing in a sense. Uh, Colin Crouch. Uh, uh, again, two points. For the, this, uh, people are making this important point about distinguishing from between politics and the state. <coughs> Political conflict. Uh, well, in, in democracies and in, in settled in, in societies with settled <coughs> institutions, but political conflict is about two things. One, it's about people wanting to hold office and the chance to take patronage, uh, as opposed to other people having it, and it's about certain great issues about directions that are going to be taken by society, and you actually only get a healthy politics when the former can only get there by using the latter, uh, and if you run out of the latter, if you run out of great issues about direction society is taking, then political conflict um, becomes just competition for place. And, and to state that he crouches third law of politics, when political conflict is about nothing, everything becomes political. And that's one of the paradoxes of neoliberalism, because once you get a total consensus about, uh, 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 about how uh, the economy should be run, and the relationship between the state and the economy, then actually politics starts to get everywhere because it's got no big issues, and so it runs all over the place. And far from neoliberalism managing to, to get politics in a little tight little box, it finds it, it, it runs over everything. Um, uh, the second point, this question of state and law, that distinction, this distinction is very important to me because one of the things I do here is to give lectures to first 200 first-year accountancy and finance students every year on... Um, uh, business in its social and political context. And many of them, the majority, come from China and other parts of the Far East. And explaining to them the distinction between law and state is not easy. I have to spend a lot of time doing that. And they ask me a lot of questions. Uh, on the other hand, in, in the Anglophone world, uh, the distinction is understood excessively. Uh, because there is this belief that in the common law tradition, which is what really marks out the Anglophone world in the, for these purposes, uh, the common law tradition, the law is something that judges have developed and continue to develop and actually don't need the state, apart from needing the state perhaps to, uh, to, to implement decisions and, uh, and to find people who won't uh, accept settlements. Uh, the state seen as having no role, and this is... is it, 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 it just it completely exaggerates the, 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 the what can be achieved by private contracts. So there is an important distinction between law and the state, but they will never keep out of each other's head. Right? They will they will always be messing with each other. I'm sure that the speakers have said things that will resonate in your mind and will make you think. And I trust that you've 
thank you for your attention, thank you for your questions. Thank you to the two colleagues for really great discussions, but most of all, thank you for, for setting us off with some uh, great ideas and great